time of 10 o'clock. I'm glad you all made it. So we're on chapter 2, verse 40, we're going to be doing today. So does anyone have any questions before we begin from last week or any week's classes? Rajiv, you asked a question last week. And I said, yes. we'll, we'll uh, cover it today. So can you ask your question again, please? What is uh, Sankhya Yoga? Sankhya Yoga. So verse 39, which we finished with last week, it said, this is wisdom of Sankhya taught to you. Now listen to the wisdom of yoga. Endowed with which, O Partha, you shall cast off the bond of action. So what is Sankhya Yoga? Okay. So Sankhya literally means enumeration or account, listing. It's a factual, meaning factual. Now, in the context of the Gita, it means investigation or analysis of the reality. Brahman, the self. So the second chapter of the Gita is called Sankhya Yoga because the Lord gives a logical analysis of the self. It's systematic. So until now, Krishna in his sermon to Arjuna has given out a sequence of thought that is a logical thought, reasonable, and there's an end conclusion cause and effect. What does Krishna talk about? He talks about how the body will die, but the Atman is everlasting. The mind and intellect moves to another body because of unfulfilled desires. Krishna then talks about how the world is always changing, but Brahman, the self, is the same. It does not change. It's all factual, he's, he's quoting. We must develop our intellect, control the desires of the mind. Don't be attached to the world. Instead, concentrate your thought on the self. Only this will take you to fulfill your purpose of life. So the way Krishna talks about this philosophy, it is with logic and reason. It all makes sense. There's a thought flow. And you come to a natural conclusion. So this is Sankhya Yoga. In fact, the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is what we're covering now, is all Sankhya Yoga. It's all logic and reason. Chapter two is the most important chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. 
because it gives out the highest philosophy and Lord Krishna summarizes the teachings of the whole Gita in chapter two. The essence of the whole Gita is in this chapter, chapter two. And in this chapter, Krishna gives out this logical thought flow, Sankhya Yoga, in four main topics. This chapter two is in is four topics. In the first topic, Arjuna completely surrenders him. This is like a this is also a, a recap for all of you, by the way. Yes. In topic one, Arjuna completely surrenders himself to Lord Krishna. And he accepts his position as a disciple and Krishna as his guru. He requests Krishna to guide him on how to dismiss his sorrow. That's chapter one, topic one. Topic two, Krishna explains to Arjuna the main cause of all his grief and all our grief. He's saying it's due to the ignorance of your true nature, ignorance of the self. The self is eternal. Don't be attached to the body. Don't be attached to your personality. Just do your duty. This grief is because you're attached to your personality. Then topic three, karma yoga, the discipline of selfless action without being attached to its fruits. This is a topic we're on now. Then the last fourth topic in this chapter is the description of a perfect man, one whose mind is steady, single-pointed on the self. That person reaches this high state of self-realization. The problem is that we as human beings, because we're so attached to the world, we cannot from just reading chapter two understand the knowledge and convert it to action. It's not wisdom, it's just knowledge. You've got notes, you can read it, but it won't help you unless you convert it to wisdom. It's just knowledge. Just like Arjuna, who has awakened a little, but it still doesn't make sense to him. I gotta do what, Krishna? Why? How? He doesn't understand. So we need Krishna to break it down further for us. Lord Krishna to explain to us, hence the next 16 chapters. He breaks everything down. So chapter two is just a concise version of the Gita. So this is Sankhya Yoga. Rajiv, any clarifications? Yes, understood. Thank you. Welcome. So anything you don't understand, just ask then we can um, go through it in detail. So today's class, quick recap. Verse 34, 35, 36, Krishna explained to Arjuna all the negative things that will happen if he did not fight this righteous war. Then in the last three verses, 37, 38, 9, we covered last week, Krishna points out to Arjuna, the positive side of fighting this battle. Arjuna, if you fight and you die whilst fighting for your people, you will reach heaven. You'd have fulfilled your duty as a Kshatriya, exhausted, exhausted your vasanas to go to heaven. 
Not that there is any heaven, but Arjuna doesn't understand. So Krishna is explaining his words. And Arjuna, if you win the war, kill the Kauravas, you'll be regarded as a great hero, great warrior. So it's a win-win situation. Krishna is explaining, Lord Krishna is explaining to Arjuna. So Krishna advises Arjuna to fight the war without worrying about the result. You'll not incur sin. Meaning, no agitations if you kill. Do not be affected by the pairs of opposites. If not anything, Arjuna, fight to resurrect righteousness in the country. You have an opportunity to serve a greater ideal. With this attitude, it will exhaust all your vasanas. will lead you to self-realization. Arjuna doesn't even understand what self-realization is. And Krishna knows he doesn't understand. So that was um, last class, 37, 38, 39. We have one more verse of that topic, and then it's uh, the next topic. Any questions on what we've covered so far? Okay, so we're talking about Karma Yoga. So we'll start with verse 40. Neha Bikramana Sosti Pratyavayo navidyate svalpamapyasya dharmasya trayate mahato bayat neha bhikramana sosti pratyavayo navidyate svalpamapyasya dharmasya in this, there is no loss of effort, nor is there production of contrary result. Even very little of this discipline protects one from great fear. So, karma yoga. What does karma yoga mean? What does karma yoga mean? Anybody? Anybody? Karma Yoga. Vanita? Is, uh, it, does it mean, I, I feel like saying path of action? Yeah, path of action. Path of right action. Okay. We're all acting. Are we acting correctly? So Karma Yoga teaches us how to act correctly. And this verse is saying, when you follow the path of Karma Yoga, right action, there are only benefits. So he says, no, no loss of effort, nor is there production of contrary results, meaning negative results. Karma yoga. So as we said, yoga means reuniting with the self. Any yoga you do besides the postural one, it means uniting with the self. You've been separated from that. Your true personality, the self. So performing karma, bhakti, jnana, yoga reunites you with yourself. So the ultimate benefit of practicing karma yoga is realizing the self. 
moksha, which is our goal as a human being. Most people don't understand that, by the way. Even religious people don't understand. And that's covered in the later verses, 42, 43, 44, later on, which we're going to cover. Most people don't understand that the point of being spiritual, religious practices is to reach self-realization. So Krishna here says that even if you don't reach that goal of self-realization, the fact that you're walking on that path, even a little progress will benefit from protection from fear. What do you think he means by protection of fear? From fear. Every, very, even very little of this discipline protects one from great fear. What can we? What are we all fear, fearful of? What are we scared of? Hmm? What are we fear, fearful of? What are you fearful of? Ultimately, besides these classes, ultimately death. Death, yeah, death. What, are, what else? Anything else? Ultimately death. Life itself can be fearful. You know, we're all quite fortunate. We're in, this, in the West, as we said. But life itself can be fearful. The unknown, fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? People are scared. Fear of the unknown. You're scared of when you have this, when you walk this path, you're scared of nothing in the world. You become fearless in life. Just a little bit of knowledge. Just a little bit of karma yoga. You'll no longer fear even death. You understand? I don't want to come back as this human being, I want to end this life. It's a suffering. In fact, if we analyze your life, it's all suffering. You're just used to the suffering, that's the problem. You're neutralized to the suffering. Yeah, well, you're neutralized to it. You, you coat it, so you don't, underst you don't understand that you're suffering anymore. So therefore, by practicing karma yoga, there's no negative effects or energy wasted on this path. There's only win-win, just like Arjuna. Win-win situation if you follow the path of right action. Many, many rewards. And as we cover the further chapters, we'll understand in more detail what it means. Arunaben, could you read paragraph one, please? Karma yoga is the path of righteous action, the path that culminates in self-unfoldment, that leads to realization of the supreme state of human existence. If a person reaches the very end of this righteous path, he gains the ultimate experience. But when he fails to complete this path, even then there can be no effort wasted, nor can any adverse result accrue from it. Furthermore, even a little progress on this path protects him from fear. Please continue, sorry. All human activities fall broadly under three categories. 
Number one, actions performed with selfish and egocentric desires. Number two, actions performed with unselfish desires. Number three, actions performed without desires. Karma yoga in its purest form falls under the third category. It envisages actions fully dedicated to self-realization, free from all desires and expectations. Actions performed with a perfect sense of detachment. A karma yogi commands enormous power and derives supreme happiness. He is rid of all fears that plague human existence. Thank you. So what is karma yoga? As you said, we'll explore more in detail. The paragraph Arunaben just read, it says, humans, all human beings act in three different ways. You analyze your actions. Number one, actions performed with selfish and egocentric desires. Me, my, I, I. How does it benefit me? That's it. Number two, actions performed with unselfish desires. You increase the circle of your identification, close family, friends. You help them out, unselfish. Then actions performed without desires. Now you might say, how do you perform actions without desires? So we'll, we'll, we'll explain to you. First two actions, selfish, unselfish. When you perform actions that are selfish or unselfish, the result is it deprives you of energy. While you act, you become fatigued, you get tired because of the selfish nature of the action. When you act with an ego, it spoils the action. It says it generates misery, sorrow. You become fearful due to selfishness, self-centeredness. So selfish action equals loss of energy equals sorrow. Why do you get tired? Any idea when you do selfish action? Why do you get tired? Yeah, Kevo? Is it that your mind's not completely focused on the action, but you're focused on your possible result? What, what can I take out of it, right? You're worried about that more than the actual action. Absolutely. Mind becomes agitated. What will I get? When will I get it? All that mental agitation tires you and you can't focus on that action. You can't put 100% on the action. When you teach, Bijal, you're a teacher, when you teach, if you're worried about will my kids, the children pass their exams or not, how, how many will pass, how many not will pass, you, cannot, you, you, should, you have to concentrate on the teaching itself. Give it 100% on the action. If you give it 100%, kids will pass. Whoever's going to pass will pass. Whoever puts in effort will pass. If you're worried about the result, you cannot teach them 100%. Your mind isn't focused on your work. Anything, any, any action. So the correct, and 
Unselfish desires is the same thing. The correct action is acting without desires. In other words, doing what one ought to, without an ego, unattached to the work, unattached to the result. Acting in this way creates the best work. You don't get fatigued. The mind is also with, with you, working. The reason it's called desireless actions is because when you act in that way, you're not creating new desires. The first two, selfish and unselfish actions, you create more desires. So how do you act? You act with a higher ideal. What is a higher ideal? Initially, family, community, your company, fellow human beings, all of humanity, ultimately self-realization. So you're shifting from selfishness to unselfishness to just doing what you ought to do with a higher ideal. Any questions? We'll go into more detail in the later chapters. You get the general idea of it. Rajiv, you get the general idea? Yeah? Yes, thank you. Okay. So, in life, everyone is acting to gain what? What is everyone, what is everyone's motivation in work, in, in acting? What do you all act for? Dharmesh? Before I would say happiness, temporary. Yeah. But now, it's self-realization. <laughs> okay. But generally, it's happiness. Everyone is acting to gain happiness. I commend you, by the way, Dharmesh. And when you don't get happiness, what is, yeah, what is the result? Sorrow. Pairs of opposites, happiness, unhappiness. Unhappiness means sorrow. So what he's saying is when you act based on the principle of this karma yoga, you gain happiness and peace. You gain happiness and peace. So this is what you're looking for, happiness and peace. Any action you do, that is the result in the world. Great satisfaction in life. No fear of anything. Then, as you gain more knowledge, karma yoga, the path of action, you reach the goal of self-realization. So a little knowledge can get rid of all your insecurities in life. It ensures you against any loss. So why wouldn't you act in this way? See, Dharmesh said, before it was happiness. So when you're not happy, you're unhappy. Yeah. And what did he say? Temporary happiness. He now understands that even when you gain that happiness in the world, it's temporary. Some of you may have not picked up on that. He said temporary happiness. So what are we working for? Temporary happiness. 
But if you work towards a higher ideal, self-realization, happiness comes, sorrow comes, it doesn't matter. Your goal is on that higher. You understand this is life. Winter is here, it's cold. Summer is around the corner, it'll be hot. Why am I worried? So that little bit of knowledge takes away all your insecurities in life. Any questions? Can you read to the end, please? But actions performed with selfish and egocentric desires deprive you of your energy to act. You develop mental fatigue. You are unable to work anymore. The assertion of your selfish ego instantly spoils your work. Keep your mind free from selfish desires. Fix your mind upon an unselfish goal in life. The moment you raise your mind from a selfish to an unselfish ideal, you gain more energy to work. You no longer feel this mental fatigue. You can exert far greater power in your actions. Thus, rising higher in your ideals, fix your mind upon the supreme self within and work without ego or egocentric desires. Do not become mentally entangled in your work. Act in your homes, in your offices, in your society, with an impersonal attitude. Never become caught up with, with or attached to anything in the world. People believe that without attachment and involvement in worldly matters, they will lack the motivation to work, to progress. This is not true. The truth is just the opposite. The very moment you become entangled in the world, you diminish or even lose your capacity to work. You do not progress, whereas when you drop your egoism, dissolve your little self, when you are unattached, impersonal towards your work, then you turn out real work. This is karma yoga. Pursuing this path, you will gain the supreme self, the ultimate goal of human existence. Please continue to the end. Beings act in the world solely to find peace and happiness. When you act in the spirit of karma yoga, you gain happiness. Whereas selfish and egocentric activities produce sorrow and misery. The more selfish and egocentric your actions, the more sorrow and misery they generate. A person steeped in selfish activities can never find happiness in life. Another trait of a karma yogi is fearlessness. Just a little practice of karma yoga can protect you from even great fear. When a person is destructive in his behavior, when he is selfish and self-centered, when he does not fulfill obligatory duties and not do what he ought to do in life, fear arises. Conversely, a karma yogi works constructively for the welfare of others and fulfills his duties and responsibilities. He feels a great sense of satisfaction in life. He fears nothing in the world. This simple truth is clearly demonstrated in the case of animals. A carnivore's nature is selfish and destructive. 
its life is fraught with fear. Whereas a herbivore is just the opposite. The cow yields wholesome milk. The horse serves humanity. They are far from being destructive. These animals have no fear. Hence, even a little practice of this discipline should rid a person of the fears that harass him. Thank you very much. Well read, Harunabin. There you go. In nature, they give the example, herbivore, passive, just does what he's told to do. The bull, cow, sheep, they just do what you, whatever the, um, the human being tells them to do, they do. And they give out milk, food, unselfishly. They're never scared. Herbivores, I mean, carnivores, you'll find them hiding behind a tree, scared. When they, when they see food, they'll pounce quickly, eat it, take it away. Anybody comes near the food, it's mine. Selfishness. Same in human beings. The result is the same. Any questions? So now we begin topic four, desire-ridden actions. Next four verses, we'll learn how to perform the right action. And by performing the right action, we exhaust our vastness, liberating us from the self-inflicted bondage to the world. So another thing about the first two, selfish and unselfish, is you're increasing your vastness. And as you increase vastness, you're moving away further from the self. When you do what you ought to do, you're exhausting your vastness that you have, bringing you closer to the self. And the more closer you come to the self, the more happier you are. Forty-one. Vyavasayatmika buddhihi rekeha kurunandana Bahu sakahayantascha Buddha yo vyavasainam Vyavasayatmika buddhihi rekeha kurunandana Bahu sakahayantascha Buddha yo vyavasainam In this the intellect is resolute and one-pointed, O Guru Nandana. Many branched and endless indeed are thoughts of the irresolute. Many branched and endless indeed are the thoughts of the irresolute. So this verse is comparing the mind to the intellect, the difference. We covered this, some of you covered this in the earlier classes, fall of the human intellect. But just for re recap, fall of the human intellect was a long, long time ago. We as a human being is made up of the body, mind, intellect, and the self. I don't need to explain that. We've covered that many times. The body performs actions. You are here right now in this class listening 
After class, you go and have lunch, then maybe a nap. This is your body performing actions. Now, the body cannot act on its own. It has to be directed either by the mind or the intellect. Like a car, the car cannot go on its own. Someone has to drive the car, steer it into the direction that you want to go. The body is the same. So what steers the body? Either the mind or the intellect. Now, if the mind steers your body, what's, what are the components of the mind? What are the textures of the mind? Anybody? Going back to basics. What are the textures of the mind? What is the mind made up of? Everyone's mind. Deepabin, you're saying something? Uh, full of desires. Full of desires, yes. And the mind what else? is like a child. Child, yes. What else? Mind is like Sorry? Likes and dislikes. I like this, I don't like that. What's for lunch? What, you made this? You know I don't like this. Why couldn't you make this? I like that. Feelings, emotions, love. Positive and negative, by the way, yes? Love, anger, hatred, passion, envy. Jealousy, kindness, this is the mind. So any action coming from the mind will be based on these qualities and textures. Everyone's mind. So when you act based on the mind, it will be based on that. Then the intellect comes in. What does, how does the intellect, what are the textures of the intellect? What's the qualities of the intellect? Intellect, yeah, Vanita? It uh, kind of uh, sieves through all the, the mind, the ideas. It gives it some kind of, you kind of, you, it kind of gives you the, your intention could be from the mind, but your intellect will guide you whether it's the right action or not. It kind of stops you from impulsive behavior. So the mind thinks, I mean, the intellect thinks. The intellect reasons, judges, discriminates, decides. This is the intellect. You want to cross the road. Mind says, yes, quick, the bus is far away. We'll, be, we'll make it, quickly run. Intellect says, no, there's no rush. Let it be safe and then we'll cross the road. That's the intellect. Any action, is, that's why it's called monkey mind. It jumps from one thing to another, the mind. 
Any action directed by the intellect will be based on these qualities, reasons, judges, thinks. So then which organ would you prefer your actions to be guided by? Which would you like your actions, your body to be guided by, the mind or the intellect? Intellect. Intellect, thank you. Kevil. Um, yeah, I had a question. Um, so you just mentioned that at a specific point in time, it's like either your mind is controlling the body or your intellect is controlling the body. But mm. when your intellect is in, let's say, in control, um, we, we say it's like independent, it's, it's reasoning. And, but I don't know if that's always the case. What happens? In the, because to me, the way I see it is like that you have your intellect, which is like the angel on this shoulder and the devil, which is the angel or the devil on this shoulder. And at that point in time, it's whatever is, in, is more powerful, right? So I think what I'm trying to get to is there are going to be times where the mind is controlling the intellect, even though the intellect decides, you know, to do mm. an action. So you walk past the shop and you see cake and you know you're not supposed to eat it because you've had enough sweet stuff for the day. But then you, your mind says, no, have one anyway. Mm. And then your, your intellect makes that decision to say, okay, I'm just going to go buy it. It's still coming from your intellect, but it was controlled by the mind. So good question. How, how do you know? Uh, what what you're saying is that how are the decisions made? I mean, your mind, as you said, with the cake shop, you you know you're not supposed to have cake, but you look outside and your mind says, "Yes, I want it." Yeah, the intellect, you know that you shouldn't have it, but the intellect cannot intervene. It's not powerful enough to control that desire. Now, anybody anybody knows. Why cannot control that desire? Yeah, Benita? So it depends on how strong your intellect is to control yeah. the desire. Also depends on how strong that desire is. For, Absolutely. To, so the more you think about the desire of the thing that you want, the stronger it will be than the intellect will be. So your mind is, it's like uh, you want something and your intellect will say you don't, shouldn't have it. And then your mind also, but I really want it. The more time you spend thinking about something, the desire becomes stronger than the intellect. But the more time you spend practicing how to strengthen the intellect, your intellect can kick in and stop yeah. that desire. It depends on the strength of that desire. So you love cakes. Yeah. You have a strong desire for cakes. So you said you got the devil and the angel. Yes. When you're going past the cake shop, you know you're in trouble. Intellect's not powerful enough to walk past that shop and not go in. And intellect can't do nothing because the, the desire in the mind is so strong on that. You go past, okay, you go past a shoe shop, you and Bijil. Bijil has a strong desire for shoes, okay? She walks past the shop and she looks and goes, oh, these are nice Jimmy Choo's or whatever they are, yeah? You have no desire for shoes. You'll be saying, well, you've got enough pairs of shoes. Let's go, carry on. But she can't control that desire because the strength of the desire for shoes for her is really strong. Intellect, intellect can't control that desire. For you, it's cakes. For her, it may be shoes. You see how it functions. So it depends on the strength of the desire and the strength of your intellect. 
the stronger the intellect, the more you can control, even the stronger desires. So something you've been doing since childhood, for example, you've been doing it all your life. Those desires are so ingrained that it's difficult to control. You have to put a lot more effort into it. So, so ultimately, the decision making is still coming from the intellect, whether the yes. decision is right or wrong. Um, it's still coming from the intellect. It's sort of whether the mind is in control at that point or not, whether um, the intellect is able to intervene or not. Yeah, the intellect sometimes can, can't do nothing. It'll just sit on the side and think there's nothing I can do. This, uh, he's going to go into the cake shop and eat a couple of cakes. There's nothing I can do about it. He can't do anything. It's not strong enough to control that desire. You observe next time where you have a strong desire, you observe how difficult it is to control. See, you walk past uh, a meat shop, you have no desire, you're a vegetarian, you have no desire to go in. You may even cross the road. I don't like the smell of meat. Yeah, you have no desire. So there's nothing to uh, worry about there. But where you have strong desires, that's where you need to worry. You know, that's why the internet, they throw adverts at you, which you, they know that you have the strong desires for there. It'll, it'll hound you, it'll follow you everywhere you go. Any website you go on, it follows you. They know how the mind works. Ultimately, you say, okay, I'm going to buy one now. It keeps reminding you, hey, remember, you're interested in this. <laughs> yeah. So this is, they know how it works. That's is why they do that, marketing. Is that okay, Kevin? Yeah, thank you. I think uh, it's more of a recap. I think a lot of the, some of the yeah, discussed, I kind of forgot a bit about it. Yeah, but yeah. That's okay. That's what we're doing. Yeah. As we get too, as we get deeper into it, we forget the basics. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm covering it. So you, your actions can be controlled by the mind or the intellect, depending on the strength. So your physical body with its five organs of perception receive stimuli from the world. This stimuli reacts with your personality, your mind and intellect. And then you respond using your four organs of action. This is how all of us behave. So that stimuli, when you take that stimuli in, i.e. the cake, depending on your personality, depending on your likes and dislikes, your strength of that desire, it will react within and then you will act. You'll respond with your four organs of action. If the desire is weak, you'll carry on walking. If the desire is strong, you'll go in and buy one. So what you can do next time is cross over the road. You notice a cake shop coming. Cross over the road, look the other way and carry on. It may sound silly, but you're able to control that desire. You know you're going to be in trouble if you pass, if you stand outside that shop. Are you with me? So we receive stimuli with the five organs of perception and respond with the four organs of action. And just for some of the newer people who are in the class, the organs of perception are, what's the organs of perception? Vijay, were you saying something? Organs of perception are? 
How do you take in the world? All of us. Dharmesh? Eyes, ears. Taste. Nose. Nose. Eyes, tongue, ears, touch, and nose. Those are the five ways we take in stimuli. And that reacts with our mind and intellect, our personality, our vastness. And then we respond with our feet, hands, mouth, organs of reproduction. This is how we function in the world. Your response back is dependent on your personality, which is made up of your mind and intellect, your vastness, your desires. And that is why everyone is different. Because everyone's mind, intellect, and vastness are different. You go in an ice cream parlor, you try a spoon of chocolate ice cream. Depending on your likes and dislikes, your personality, vastness, you'll then either buy a scoop if you like it, or you'll try another flavor until you find that one you do like. And this is how we human beings function in the world. Any questions? Some basics there, because there's a few people here who weren't here for the basics, but it's good to remember. So it's saying in Karma Yoga, the intellect initially sets up an unselfish, fixed goal, worldly goal, which you try to follow. And then this goal can develop ultimately into self-realization. You cannot, Dermesh, just go for self-realization. You won't get there. Fix a goal, a worldly goal, a selfless goal, aim for that. When you reach that, then you pitch up a higher goal. And only the intellect can stay single-pointed, firm towards the ideal, not the mind. Mind will waver here, there, and everywhere. Endless desires. It can ask for anything. And this results in agitations and sorrow. So you guys just deserve, observe your mind. When it's, when it's quiet, just observe your mind. What's my mind doing? Try and be a third person. What's my mind doing? Let me just, let me just, let me just uh, observe. One minute is thinking about this. One minute is thinking about that. One minute is thinking about food. One minute is thinking about tomorrow, next week. Sorry, just can you just go back a little? What you said, fix a goal on the worldly, Unself a selfless worldly goal beyond your selfish interest. So, when you're setting a goal, you fix a goal on something unselfish, unselfish, and then you pitch a higher idea. Yeah, yeah. that's what it's saying because. It's difficult for the intellect to think of something so high, something beyond the world. The world you know, you can identify with the world. You go and work for a charity, you identify with that charity. But something beyond the world, so you're, you're on the back of your head, you may say, I'm doing this because I wanna reach that goal, but I have to do this first. That is fine, but you can't just pitch for that highest because you don't know the direction. So pitch on something worldly, 
something selfless, something beyond your in selfish interests. Yeah, Marita. So are you saying, so like, if you go to work, you obviously mm -hmm. go to acquire, well, you go to earn money, right? So that's, yeah. that's a selfish desire because mm -hmm. you need, well, you need the money. Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Depends on your attitude to your work. Well, in general, you go to work to earn money to then provide for your family, right? Yeah. That yeah. is a... a that is a unselfish desire because you're thinking about not just the money, you're thinking about your family. Because yes. you need to go to work to earn the money, right? Yes. Then you go to work uh, to earn the money for your family. But if you have extra money left, you're going to want to do something else with that. Maybe, I don't know, donate it or yep. get priority with it. So then that stepping stone goes higher in the yes. same process. Is that what you're saying? So each yes. step has to be higher and higher to Absolutely. create a worldly desire. So it has to yeah. start from somewhere, but- it has to start from somewhere, whatever you can start from. Yeah. But remembering to increase your identification further and further. Okay. So everything's moving away from you. And when that happens, you're purifying your own, your own personality. You're purifying your own vasanas, your desires. That's what I mean. As I said, we'll go into really detail later on. So if the body is driven by the mind, actions have no directional dimension. Only the intellect can guide the actions to its set goal. That's why we say develop the intellect. That's why we say put in effort to study in the morning. Because it helps develop the intellect. So if you have a developed intellect, any desire pops up, you can examine it before acting upon it. And especially on a spiritual path, you have to be very careful. The first step you should take is to follow the actions sanctioned by the intellect, not the likes and dislikes of the mind. If the desires are not examined by the intellect, it could lead to a negative result. People, people are misguided. People are taken into cults, all sorts of things. Why? No thinking. The leader will say, do this and you'll reach this goal. People say, okay, no thinking. You get a lot of that in America, these churches, you know? And, and that's what it is. It's just a good personality, someone with charisma can mislead so many people. So you find most people in the world operate from the level of the mind and the intellect. Intellect is very poor in most people. This is the way the world is. And it's getting worse with internet. You know, you follow influences. How can they influence you? The personalities are completely different from you. Just because they think it it's right for them doesn't mean it's right for you. You don't know how happy really they are. You don't know how much just by doing that, are they actually happy or not? But you follow influences. How can we how can you do that? I don't know. 
I think, but at that point, you don't know whether actually that is the right thing. You know, you go along with it. And it's almost like you learn through the knocks of life that something is right or not. And unfortunately, that's how, you know, if, if you knew it from the beginning, then you wouldn't take that path. That's the difference, isn't it? So what the Krishna, Lord Krishna is saying is don't go by the mind. Develop your intellect so you don't get into those knocks. You don't get into those shocks, especially the spiritual path. Life as well, but even in the spiritual path, especially on the spiritual path, you have to understand what you need to do. You have to understand where you need to get to. Only then you can apply yourself. So that's why develop the intellect. Krishna is saying to Arjuna, don't go by the whims and desires of the mind. It will only bring you sorrow. You'd lose the joy of life. Follow your intellect. Only the intellect can guide you in the right direction. And to answer to your question, Arunabhan, Arjuna is very lucky he has Lord Krishna on his side. He has a giant intellect to guide Arjuna in the battle. Otherwise, he wouldn't fight. But he's, he's there guiding us as well. He's saying, don't fall to any personality, any charismatic person, just a religion because thousands are following it, millions are following it. Think for yourself, is it right for me? That's what he's saying. Is that okay? And you can only do that if you have the capacity to think. And you can develop that capacity. That's what I saying. You're not too old. Anybody can do it, age 13 onwards. Vanita. Karma Yoga, the path of action envisages a firm goal in life determined by the intellect. The initial goal may be an unselfish ideal related to the world. The same ideal could gradually evolve to the ultimate goal of self-realization. Whatever the ideal, the intellect remains single-pointed and resolute. Contrast this to the irresolute nature of the mind. The mind cannot plan or program a determined path. It has endless desires branching off in various directions. These unfulfilled desires create mental agitations and sorrows. Krishna advises Origin not to court sorrow by falling a prey to the desires of his mind. The name Guru Ananda, by which Origin is addressed, means joy of the Gurus. Origin belongs to the family of the Gurus, and this heroism brings great joy to the clan. Use of Guru Ananda in this context implies that Arjuna would lose the joy of life if his actions were motivated by irresolute mind rather than the resolute intellect. The physical body executes all actions, yet can, cannot act by itself. The actions of the body are propelled by either the desires of the mind, by the discrimination of the intellect, or by a combination of both mind and intellect. If the irresolute mind drives the body, the actions lack direction or dimension, while actions guided by the resolute intellect 
follow their chosen path and reach their determined goal. In this verse lies the preliminary step one should make, one should take on the spiritual path. Your actions must follow the that dictates of the intellect, not the whims and fancies of your mind. The desires of your mind will draw your body to action. Your body should not yield the pressure of your mind without the sanction of your intellect. Your intellect must examine each desire and determine the course of the action. An action directly followed following a desire of the mind without intellectual guidance could lead to a disastrous result. A typical example of such a wrong action is a diabetic succumbing to his desire to eat sweets. His mind demands a sweet, his intellect prohibits eating it. But, this but, this, but his intellect does not have the strength to overpower the desire. He gives in to the demand, he eats the sweet and suffers later. The vast, the vast section of humanity is victimized by the overpowering demands of the mind. The role of the intellect in today's world is alarmingly low. The intellect hardly plays its role in today's world. Is that okay, Arunabin? Okay, well. So, it's not only the mind or the intellect the action comes from. The mind says, okay, I want to do this. Intellect might say, yeah, that's okay. You deserve it. You've been to the gym every day. You're, you're entitled to a cream cake at the end of the week. Intellect will say, yeah, okay, no problem. But it's still sanctioned by the intellect. Not everything the mind wants is bad. But it's just saying, don't act just on the mind. That's all. No. Sorry. Is it okay? Okay, well. We'll go into more detail as we go along. Any questions before we conclude? So next week, we do verse 42, 43, 44 in one go. Just Nilam, all three in one go we're going to be doing. And it's very, very interesting. It talks about Vedas where Hindus came from, why we follow the Vedas, what's in the Vedas. And for people who are not aware, it was very revealing, very interesting. 42, 43, 44. The Upanishads, where do they come in? Now, remember one thing. In this class, yes, where 100% is philosophy here. Yeah, there's no rites, rituals, nothing. 100% philosophy. This is what we're doing in this classroom. So remember that. It's 100% philosophy. Okay. Thank you for uh, coming at 10 o'clock today. I have to now go. The world is calling me. I have to fulfill my duty to the missus. She's not here, as you can see. She's already. <laughs> I have to fulfill my duty now. So have, everyone have a lovely day and we'll see you next week at 10.30.